You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For those who don't know me personally, I'm coming to you today from Richmond, Virginia, the number four most tattooed city in America, depending on which list you're looking at. A city with 15 tattoo shops per 100,000 people. Our unofficial motto is, the body is a temple and it's our job to decorate it. Right after, we don't like the way things are, but don't you dare suggest changing it. Tattooing is one of the earliest visual art forms and has served as a means of self-expression for thousands of years. The process was probably discovered by accident when ash or dirt became embedded in an open wound, leaving an indelible mark. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The word tattoo is derived from the Tahitian word tatau, which means to mark. The earliest known reference to the word was made by Joseph Banks, a naturalist on board Captain Cook's ship, the Endeavor. I shall now mention the way they mark themselves indelibly. Each of them is so marked by his humor or disposition. By the 1700s, the word tattoo was in use in Europe. The term and knowledge of the practice was probably reintroduced to Europe by sailors returning from Polynesia. I say reintroduced because early Britons used tattoos in ceremonies. The Danes, Norse, and Saxons tattooed themselves with clan sigils, an early form of family crest. The practice took a major hit when Pope Hadrian banned tattooing in the 8th century, but it was the Norman invasion in 1066, with their ink antagonistic Normans, that caused it to disappear from Western Europe until the 16th century. The oldest tattoos archaeologists have found belong to two ancient Egyptian mummies on display at the British Museum. Gebeline Man A and Gebeline Woman, named for the area where they lived between 3351 and 3017 BCE, had been at the museum for decades before the tattoos were discovered. How could they not notice something like that? In normal light, the tattoos looked like faint smudges. It took modern infrared scanning to reveal the distinct figures that have been etched onto the mummy's skin. Not only did this discovery mean that tattooing was more than a thousand years older than previously estimated, but it upended beliefs about how tattoos featured into the culture of pre-dynastic Egypt. Only females from that period had been found with tattoos, leading researchers to believe that only females had tattoos. But Gebeline Mann's arm had been decorated with what appeared to be a bull and a Barbary sheep, which are theorized to be symbols of power or virility. The meaning of Gebeline Woman's tattoos are more difficult to interpret. 
She has four S shapes on her right shoulder and a curved line on her right arm, which may depict objects used in ritual dance. The Gebeline tattoos stole the title of world's oldest from arguably the best-known natural mummy in the world, Utsi the Iceman. Utsi's tattoos, however, were geometric and abstract. He has 61 tattoos in groups of parallel lines along his body, on either side of his spine, around his left wrist, and down his legs, as well as crosses behind his right knee and ankle. His tattoos, like most ancient ink, weren't actually ink, but charcoal or ash rubbed into punctures and cuts in the skin. One theory on Utsi's tattoos is that they are actually of therapeutic origin. Many of the Iceman's tattoos correspond to classic acupuncture points, and the tattoos on his torso may have been used as some sort of treatment for chest pain. Another thing Richmond, Virginia has in abundance, I'm pleased to say, is podcasters. Joining me now is Mike Hobbit-Bickwell from the Geeks Under the Influence Podcast Network. According to what records exist, men on Captain James Cook's crew were the first to choose to get tattoos as mementos of their journey to the tattoo cultures of Japan, China, and the Pacific Islands. In 1768, James Cook's first Pacific voyage began on board the HMS Endeavor. Many of the sailors on the Endeavor decided to get local tattoos. Tattoos started becoming even more commonplace among sailors during and directly after World War I. In England, many soldiers got tattoos before heading out to the front lines. Common choices included regimental crests, portraits, and the Lions of England. One man responsible for thousands of those tattoos was the, quote, king of tattooists, George Burchett. Burchett joined the Navy at 16, and like so many sailors before and after him, got his first tattoo in Japan. Navy life didn't end up working out for Burchett, who eventually deserted, leaving with a tattoo machine given to him by a shipmate. He found a new start in Jerusalem, where he set up shop tattooing pilgrims, visiting the site where Jesus was said to have been crucified. He angered local tattooists by branding his shop as the only British and hygienic tattoo shop in Jerusalem. He eventually left and found his way back to England. Burchett set up a cobbler business in Mile End in London, but he was quickly spending more time tattooing. Once word got out of his talent on the tattoo machine, he became so popular, in fact, he moved his studio to Lambeth Road near Waterloo, the station where many soldiers left for the front line. You gotta go where the business is. After the war, popular tattoo choices changed again. Memorials, images of graves, and crossed flags to show the unity of nations became popular. Soldiers got things like memorials and portraits of lost friends, the Rock of Ages, which is a religious cross tattoo also known as the Sailor's Cross, and other more somber choices reflective of their losses they incurred during the war. It took all the way to World War II before tattoos reached another peak in its evolution and popularity. This is a name that we should all be familiar with, Sailor Jerry. His name is synonymous with sailor tattoos, and for good reason. Born as Norman Collins, the former Navy man gained popularity in Hawaii during and after World War II, for his tattoos boasting vivid color, bold iconography, and the techniques of Japanese tattoo masters combined with Jerry's own American sensibilities. 
Collins was born on January 14, 1911. As a child, he hopped freight trains across the country and learned tattooing from a man named Big Mike from Palmer, Alaska. He originally used the hand-pricking method, but in the 1920s, he met Tats Thomas from Chicago, who taught him how to use a tattoo machine. He practiced on drunks brought in from Skid Row, and according to a well-known story, attempted to tattoo a corpse. After a few years of tattooing Navy cadets and drunks, Collins himself enlisted and was shipped off to various ports in Asia before landing in Hawaii in the 1930s. There, Collins continued working as a tattoo artist until 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Wanting to get back into the fray, Collins tried and was denied re-enlistment, so he signed up for the Merchant Marines instead. Allegedly, he worked in the Japanese waters for much of World War II. Sailor Jerry has been credited for beginning the use of single-needle tattooing, using an autoclave for sterilization, and for creating purple ink. Before Collins, tattoos were done in only a few colors, black, green, red, and yellow. Collins worked with a company to create what would be called Carbazole Violet, the first purple ink. For a long time, Collins only used the purple ink on those he felt were worthy, swearing them to secrecy about its origin. Sailor Jerry cultivated relationships with tattoo artists across the world and created art that still exists today. Among these were his Japanese-influenced pieces, which he learned in part from the Horus of Japan. Hori, a honorific title, which means to carve, was bestowed on the Japanese tattoo masters. Collins, in jest, gave himself the title of Hori Smoku, which was meant to tease his Japanese compatriots who could not say the phrase, Holy Smoke. In addition to the Japanese Horus, Collins kept in touch with numerous other tattoo artists, including three other soon-to-be masters of the art, Ed Hardy, Mike Rollo Malone, and Zeke Owen. Collins kept tattooing in Hawaii at his shop, located on Smith Street in Chinatown section of Honolulu until 1972, when he went out the way he lived. He suffered a heart attack while riding his motorcycle, dying three days after the accident. Before he died, though, he made his wife promise to have either Hardy, Malone, or Owens continue on the shop. If none were able to, he desired the building be burned to the ground. Luckily, Malone stepped in to purchase the shop and would continue to tattoo from the shop that would be named China Sea for the next 25 years. The shop still exists under the name Old Ironside Tattoo, using the name Sailor Jerry used as a moniker on a late-night radio show he hosted to talk about politics, philosophy, and life. Though sailor tattoos and tattoos themselves have made their way into the mainstream, the meaning behind traditional sailor pieces remains. Of course, the first we have to go over is the anchor. An anchor placed anywhere on the body represented that a sailor had completed a voyage and had crossed the Atlantic. It was also thought to bring steadiness. A compass was so a sailor would always be able to find his way home. Dice was often chosen by a sailor to show that he was a fearless risk taker. It was also chosen by sailors that enjoyed gambling. A nautical star was a popular emblem sailors would get to be sure they would be guided home safely. And pigs and roosters were kept on board in crates that floated, so a pig on one foot and a rooster on the other was thought to protect a sailor from drowning. If you liked this segment, go to GUIPodcast.com where you have access to all seven of our podcasts, including the Geeks Under the Influence podcast, the GUI Precap, Beautiful Disasters, Quite Contrary, Smack My Pitch Up, Smash Talk, and Geek Father. Follow us on social media as well just by looking up Geeks Under the Influence or GUI Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
I'm Mike the Hobbit Bigot. Thanks, Hobbit. You folks might want to check out the July 13th edition of their podcast, Smack My Pitch Up, that's pitch with a P, where Hobbit and I discuss how we would remake or reboot the 1980 sci-fi action classic, Flash Gordon. In the last 20 years or so, tattoos have shaken off a lot of their negative association. People no longer assume you must be a sailor, biker, or convict because you have one. But stereotypes do come from somewhere, and tattoos are interwoven with prison life around the world. Because tattooing is officially forbidden in prison, the practice is clandestine, slapdash, and often, we'll say, unsanitary. Puncturing the skin hundreds or thousands of times with a dirty implement in a dirty environment can bring on complications like tetanus and gangrene, or transmit diseases like hepatitis, syphilis, and AIDS. One common problem is lymphadenitis, an inflammation of the lymph nodes that comes with fever and chills. Pigments are often made from things like burnt rubber, ash, or melted plastic, mixed with mediums like baby oil or shampoo. In some cases, the solids are even mixed with urine, and it's considered advisable to use the urine of the person getting the tattoo, for obvious health reasons. These tattoos are almost a pictographic language telling the history of an inmate's life of crime. A clock with no hands means a lengthy sentence, as does a cobweb, which some inmates add a row to for each year that they serve. A teardrop under the eye can mean a murder conviction, or attempted murder if it's just the outline. It could also be a vow of revenge when a friend or relative is killed. A five-pointed crown is the emblem of the Latin King's Gang. 666 and 000 belong to the Crips, while 023 belongs to the Bloods. 7 doesn't denote luck, but rather the letter G, which stands for God or Gangster. 14 is used by Hispanic gangs in California, but is also used by white supremacists to symbolize a particular 14-word quote that they like. RRR means Respect, Reputation, Revenge. A tattoo of 50-50 may be worn by a non-gang member. Three dots by the eye stands for Mi Vida Loca, or My Crazy Life, referring to the gang lifestyle in general, or it could refer to the Holy Trinity of Christianity. Five dots, a quincunx, represents the prisoner inside the four walls of his cell. Bonus fact, Thomas Edison had a quincunx tattoo on his right arm. While we aren't entirely sure why, we do know that he invented an electric pen that is the precursor of modern tattoo machines. And it's tattoo machine, not tattoo gun. The language of prison tattoos is especially deep in Russia. Arkady Bronikov, a senior expert in forensics at the USSR Ministry of Internal Affairs for more than 30 years, visited correctional institutions in Ural and Siberia as part of his official duties. From the mid-60s to the mid-80s, he interviewed, photographed, and gathered information about convicts and their tattoos, 
building one of the most comprehensive archives to date, published as Russian Criminal Tattoo Encyclopedia. The inmates interviewed by Bronikov claimed that they started getting tattoos only after they had committed a crime. As their convictions add up and sentences become more severe, the tattoos multiply. In minimum security prisons, for example, around 70% of the convicts have tattoos. In medium security, it's 80%. In maximum security, it rises to and over 95%. That gradient is similar in female facilities, though women are tattooed at about half the rate of men. In a reverse of what you would expect, criminal leaders tend not to have a large number of tattoos usually only sporting a pair of seven or eight pointed stars on their collarbones. There are grave consequences for a convict wearing a tattoo he didn't earn. He may be forced to remove it himself by cutting the skin off with a piece of glass or sanding it off with a brick. The repercussions for continuing to display it are actually worse. The skull and crossbones indicates this prisoner is serving a life sentence. Wrist manacles indicate a sentence of more than five years. If you've lived a wandering life or are in the habit of trying to escape from prison, you may wear the image of a ship with white sails. A snake around the neck is a sign of drug addiction. If you turned 18 in prison, you may be tattooed with a rose. A longing for freedom, either from prison or the criminal lifestyle, can be denoted by a lighthouse or by the Statue of Liberty. A bow tie tattoo is forcibly applied to thieves who turn informant. Rage against the government is symbolized by a double-headed eagle, military-style medals, and devils or wild animal bearing their teeth, known as oscals or big grins. A spider crawling on the right shoulder is indicative of a thief. If the spider is crawling up the shoulder, the thief is still active. If the spider is crawling down, the thief is done with that life. Depending on the location on the body, stars can convey a prisoner's status. On the knees, the stars are a sign of a prisoner who commands respect, as in, I will never kneel for anyone else. Only the most respected prisoners wear stars on their chests. A dagger through the neck suggests that the inmate has murdered someone in prison and is available for hire. The number of blood drops coming off the tip of the knife may signify his body count to date. A naked woman being burnt on a cross symbolizes a conviction for the murder of a woman, with the number of logs on the fire denoting the number of years of the sentence. A tattoo of a mermaid can indicate a sentence for rape of a minor or child molestation. Known as Amorit or Cupid, these convicts face retribution by other prisoners. Eyes on the torso can suggest that the prisoner is ever vigilant or that someone is watching over them, while eyes on the stomach suggest that the inmate is gay. Prisoners used to wear tattoos of Stalin or Lenin over their heart, not out of fealty, but as an attempt to thwart the firing squad, who would not shoot a portrait of their leader. It rarely helped, as it was just as easy to shoot them in the head.
Christian iconography is quite common. However, in the context of the Soviet prison system, or the zone as it's called, those images have nothing to do with religious beliefs. The Madonna and Child is one of the most popular tattoos and can have a number of meanings, from loyalty to a criminal family, to a belief that it will ward off evil, to an indication that the wearer has been behind bars from an early age. A church or monastery is the sign of a thief, with the number of cupolas on the church translating to the number of convictions. Crosses are commonly tattooed on the chest to show devotion to the thieves' tradition and that the bearer belongs to a caste of thieves. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From the home of vodka and SARS, we travel east to the land of sake and emperors. The traditional method of applying tattoos in Japan is tabori, using a bamboo tool and needle to repeatedly, carefully, tediously, painfully poke the design into the skin. Colors carry their own significance. The first tattoos were gray and black, but by the early 18th century, the palette expanded to include red. Dark red was made with a mineral called green vitriol that caused fevers and rashes when used under the skin. The redder your tattoo was, the tougher you were. Tattooing had actually been illegal until 1948, unless the person you were tattooing was not Japanese. It was reasonably acceptable to ink a foreigner. The most common non-Japanese person in Japan for centuries were sailors. Thus, these rare Japanese tattoos and their unique style was carried throughout the world. The relationship between tattoos and the criminal element is strong in Japan as well. Whether you picture the noble samurai of ancient Edo or the brightly colored kawaii culture of modern Tokyo, the words caste system and untouchable probably aren't the first to leap to mind when you think of Japan. The lowest caste of Japanese society, dating back to medieval times, are the Burakumen, an innocent-sounding name that literally means people from the village. It's nicer than the names of the two groups that make up the Burakumen, the Ita, the impure people, and the Hinin, the nobody or non-human. Japan had adopted Confucianism from China, which divided people into four categories scholar, farmer, artisan, and merchant. If you didn't fit into one of these categories, you were essentially not a part of society. The adoption and codifying of Buddhism 
actually helped to restrict those on the bottom with the concept of kigare, which is like sin, except it's not only what you do, but also things that happen to you. If you did something unclean, like touch the placenta during childbirth, or if something happened to you, like someone close to you dying, you would have to cleanse and purify yourself. The Burakuman had been relegated to lives of constant kigare, which meant that they could never really purify themselves. For the Ita, this was jobs that no one else would do because of the kigare, jobs like tanning hides or handling dead bodies. For the Hinnin, it was things like begging, prostitution, stealing, and, interestingly enough, acting. Since the 11th century CE, they have faced Jim Crow-like discrimination, even though they are racially the same as the rest of Japanese society. The government didn't count them in the census because they were regarded as barely human, moved them to sequestered neighborhoods, and forced them to wear clothes to distinguish themselves. Authorities also tattooed them as marks of criminals or for antisocial behavior. This practice lasted for over a thousand years. So there was really no reason for the Burakuman not to invest themselves in crime. When gambling began to spread through Japan, they were the ones who ran the games. As they began to amass some wealth and a little bit of power, they began to form gangs to protect it. The Yakuza. By one estimate, three out of four Yakuza members come from this untouchable class. They took the tattooing that had been forced on them as a mark of shame and made it a point of pride. Tattoos are so closely associated with the Yakuza that some businesses, even today, openly ban customers with visible tattoos. Bonus fact two, when American cartoons like The Simpsons and kids shows like Bob the Builder are imported to Japan, they are first edited to add a fifth finger to the normally four-fingered characters. Why all that effort? Missing fingers are another key characteristic of the Yakuza. The cutting off of fingers is a common punishment for failure, a practice called Yubitsume. The Yakuza also gave the world Nintendo. Want to hear that story or something else? Pop over to our Facebook or Instagram and let us know. Whereas the Yakuza are known throughout the world, Tattoos are also emblematic of the Ainu people of northern Japan, the direct descendants of the first people to inhabit the islands as long ago as 12,000 years. For the Ainu, both the wearing and the applying of tattoos was exclusive to females. The position of tattoo artist was customarily filled by grandmothers or maternal aunts who were called tattoo aunts. According to their traditional accounts, Tattooing was brought to earth by their ancestral mother, the younger sister of the creator god, Okikurumi. Their most common and easily most conspicuous tattoo is a large smile shape covering nearly the width of their face. They begin with a small spot on the upper lip and add to it over time. I don't really want to reference the Joker here, but it is the most efficient way to get the image across in this non-visual presentation. 
They also tattooed their hands and forearms with patterns of stripes, curves, or braids, beginning as young as age five. Traditional Ainu tattooing instruments, called makiri, were knife-like implements of steel and before that, obsidian. The sheaths and handles of these tools were intricately carved with zoomorphic motifs. Shallow cuts were made and soot from the bottom of a kettle was rubbed into the incisions. The tattoo aunt would sing a yukar or a portion of an epic poem that said, Even without it, she's so beautiful. The tattoo around her lips, how brilliant it is, it can only be wondered at. Throughout history, Japanese authorities prohibited the use of tattoos by the Ainu and other ethnic people under their authority, like the indigenous people of Taiwan, to deprive them of their cultural practices and press them toward assimilation. The Ainu refused these laws because tattoos were believed to protect them from evil spirits entering the body, as a prerequisite for marriage and preparation for the pain of childbirth, and necessary to be accepted by the souls of their ancestors in the afterlife. One report from the 1880s states, They say the gods will be angry, and that the women cannot marry unless they are tattooed. They repeat frequently, it's part of our religion. One Ainu woman stated in the 1970s, I was 21 years old before I had this little tattoo put on my lips. After it was done, my mother hid me from the Japanese police for five days. I wish we could have retained at least this one custom. Tattoos are also a rite of passage into womanhood for the Mycin people of Papua New Guinea. Until they have covered their entire faces in exotic curvilinear patterns, they are thought to be blank faces, not yet ready for marriage. Women are also the tattoo artists exclusively for the Cayenne people of Borneo. Adolescent girls were tattooed at puberty to confer adult status, to attract men, and to provide protection against evil spirits. Their pigments were made of soot or powdered charcoal, which was thought to ward off malevolent spirits, and could also include special charms, made from ground-up pieces of meteorite or shards of specific animal bones. These were thought to make the tattoos even more powerful. For the outline, the artist attached up to five bamboo splinters, or imported sewing needles, to a stick. After dipping them in the pigment, the artist would tap them into the skin with a mallet. Solid areas were filled in with a circular configuration of 15 to 20 needles. In certain Borneo tribes, the whole process actually begins with a special ceremony complete with chanting and animal sacrifice. The Iban tribe of Borneo believe that the soul inhabits the head, and taking an enemy's head gives you their soul and their power. Even though head hunting was made illegal over a century ago, the occasional head is still taken today. Upon return from a successful head hunting raid, Warriors would be recognized with tattoos, usually of anthropomorphic animals, on their fingers. The women of the Ibon were adorned for accomplishments in weaving, dancing, or singing. As they grew older, women were often covered by a weave of inked images spreading across their legs, across the tops of their feet, and along their hands and forearms. Their tattoos also tell the story of their social status. 
High caste women can afford more ornate tattoos and wear motifs that are taboo for low caste women. Slaves are not allowed tattoos at all. For those who hunt seals and not men, the Inuit of Alaska and Canada, women receive larger and more complex facial tattoos than men. These are both marks of beauty and spiritual talismans. The artists of the Inuit are, this shouldn't be a surprise for my gentle listener, older women. They applied the pattern freehand, using special needles and soot mixed with oil. Women typically wore large V-shaped pattern on the forehead to the nose, an oval shape on the cheeks and parallel lines from the lower lip toward the jaw were also common. Both men and women would tattoo stick-figure-like forms along the forehead to symbolize their ancestors. Tattooing performed at the time of puberty was perhaps the most important rite of passage for indigenous women in certain tribes native to California and the Southwest. The practices surrounding the tattoo custom also enabled the women to exercise control over their bodies during the course of their lifetime and onwards into the afterlife. This was because the power of tattooing was derived from magical forces that transcended time, space, and human existence itself. Prior to their tattoos, the girls might be kept in seclusion, forbidden to speak, or put on restrictive diets, depending on their individual tribe. Their faces may be painted or covered all over with mud and clay. The Cinquione of California would give the girl a ritual bath and sing and dance around her before she is poked copious times with a needle of deer bone. That beats the hell out of the American experience of being given a pamphlet from Kotex and a note to get out of gym class. Here again, older women were the artists, leading me to ask, why don't I know of a single female-identifying tattooist with gray hair? Share this on your social media and tag any older female tattooists you know. I would love to talk to them about keeping up this ancient tradition. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. It would be a bit on the nose to say that we barely scratched the surface of this topic. And you're probably wondering why I didn't touch on certain tattoo traditions like the Maori of New Zealand and scarification of Sub-Saharan Africa, but I was trying to steer toward lesser-known traditions. Would you like to hear a tattoo part two? You can email me at yourbrainonfacts at gmail.com or post it at facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts and I'll start taking notes for a sequel episode. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word bulbous. Bulbous. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.